Hey, Dame. What's good? You know, I was curious. We've been home for a minute now recording remotely. And, you know, I just feel like I've had so much more time on my hands. I've been listening to more music, watching more shows, engaging with more podcasts. And I was curious, have you listened to any podcasts recently? Nope. Still no. I, I make this and I watch things and I love all you podcast listeners because you make this work possible. <laughs> but all you other podcasters, don't ask me. I have not heard your podcast. I'm really sorry. It is no hard feelings. I don't listen to my own. <laughs> if you were... If I were though, to a podcast. I know where I would go. Where would you go? I'm going to check out Overcast. Overcast is an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. Yeah, I love independence. I love free things. This sounds like where I'm going to have to go uh, step into this game of podcast listening podcast for the people get it for free on the app store education hello hey this is ergo it delightfully truly certainly is i'm kiss i'm damon that was a litany of adverbs to bring us into a wonderful conversation uh how are you dame I'm doing pretty well. You and I just had a cool little weekend that, that was helpful. My first little off day in a while. And now we are here talking with the ultimate, our favorite. So I am, I'm through the roof. I'm on the moon. All right. I want to give you like, a, this isn't even just because of the Marvel shit, but this is, I'm going to put like some superhero music in under as we do hey, your intro. Sweet. Let's do sweet. It. Do some rights free. Do some rights free. Oh no, the creative, music. I have, oh. if it was possible to loot the creative commons, I have looted the creative <laughs> commons at this point. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we are so excited to be closing out our education suite with the brilliant partner in crime, partner in thought, partner in imagining how a world can be better and then doing it together in the ways we can. The only person who's been willing to sit in her clothes closet while we record <laughs> in the eight months of the pandemic other than the incomparable. <laughs> I wouldn't even try to compare. Folks, Eve Ewing is back on the show. Hi, friends. How are you? Coming to you live from... <laughs> Coming to you live from the the closet. The only sad thing about this episode is that people can't hear the many very funny jokes that we got off before we started recording. That's not one that's day, not for them. One day we'll do Ergo Uncensored. You're yeah. one of the few success stories of us making a podcast to try to make more friends, and it worked. <laughs> so that's not even for them. Yay! That was just for us. Um, and in that spirit, I want to open the door for you to hear something cool that Damon can do in the intro. Damon, do you want to give him the cat noise? Wow, that's so feline. That's so dope. I'm so proud of you. It's pretty it's cool. Rare. I just thought you I just thought you would appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's I'm so impressed. So we're here to close out this education suite, um, but let's start the same way we always do. It's uh, a particularly loaded question uh, at this particular moment in time. But how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world, Eve? Man, listen, uh, you know, I think that like the best word for how I'm living right now is like everything is so unpredictable. For example, a few days ago, I was really depressed. I was really depressed all day. I was really struggling. I told somebody that I felt like I was I was doing like an army crawl through the mud mm -hmm. to accomplish mm -hmm. anything like doing anything was so hard. Um, 
And I was just struggling through trying to prepare to teach for the week, struggling through, you know, reading, just everything I was trying to do. And then the next day I woke up and I was like, I'm fine. And and there's just no rhyme or reason yeah. to it, you know, like, and so I really, I think I need to return to something I was really good at at the beginning of the pandemic, which was like taking my own mental and emotional temperature and being really accepting of whatever, like in the same way as Chicagoans, we wake up and we're like, oh, it's, it's going to be 60 degrees in the morning, <laughs> but it's going to be 20 degrees by two o'clock and it's going to rain for five hours, and, you know, and we're like, okay, cool. These are the seven layers I need to, like, this is the way I prepare for this. I, I think I need to go back to a practice of really waking up and being like, this is how I am today. And then just trying to make it work, which I think is hard with work responsibilities and life responsibilities, but it's just kind of necessary. So that's, that's, that's kind of how I am. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm abiding day by day. I just was thinking about the layer thing. Because uh, Damon and I were just talking about how the inevitable result of that is you just end up with your entire wardrobe in your car. Oh, definitely right. <laughs> <laughs> you got a hoodie. You got a, a you know fleece of you got some a, type. Three, four umbrellas that you didn't. You know, one of them is broken. And then the conundrum always is: Do I take these things out of the car? Because at some point they will come in handy, and then you end up driving right. around with a closet. Right. Never take them out. I mean, you know, I have a very apocalyptic frame of mind at all times. So I, I'm always like, oh, I could end up like stranded in a snowbank and I'm going to really wish I had My this like coat. sleeveless hoodie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm going to wish I have four or five coats and like half a blanket. And so I, I don't, I like to leave those. Things. I also am the person with like bungees in my car. I just, you know, I'm like, how are we going to survive in the car if needed? Mm. Uh, so this is my time. Yeah. This is my <laughs> this is everyone, my time to shine. Everyone else is catching up. Um, to that point, before we get into the the sweet stuff, obviously we're talking exactly a week before the election. Oh um, Jesus! We don't. I'm not saying let's have an unpack of of national politics, but I am saying like as you mentioned, you're like not apocalypse ready, but apocalypse preparatory. Like I've known that about you for a mm, long time. Mm -hmm. And in some ways it's yes, like yes. greenlit a lot of my <laughs> preparation. Um, so on the other podcast that I produced that you've been on, uh, the first episode you talked about what was in your apocalypse knapsack. Yeah. And that's the first episode of the whole versus Ever, yeah. the e viewing versus the apocalypse. Yeah. Little did that we turned know. out to be prescient. Yeah. So yeah. is there anything that for this particular wave of the apocalypse, other than a mask, uh, what, are you, what else are you throwing in your knapsack? Well, you know, you know, I always assume we're like under all types of surveillance. So I'm going to try to think about how much I want to talk about guns. Uh, <laughs> and I, I'm just going to obliquely refer to them and then move past that. Uh, I think that if you are the feds and you are listening, I am not carrying guns in my knapsack. Please do not detain me and look for guns. But, you know, I'm just going to leave it intentionally vague. The point is, if you are a white supremacist and you're listening to this, I am carrying many guns <laughs> on my guns person. I have I, every gun. Guns you've never heard of. I got them. You don't even Fucking know. Fucking Booker Eli my over here. Guy, yeah. Hello. You don't even you don't, psh, listen. So whoever's listening. Don't worry about it is the point. But um, I think that, honestly, water is a really important one. I think that also, like, what are the things we need in terms of, like, staying tied to people we care about and staying tied to our own kind of grounded emotional reality? So I've been journaling a lot. I've never been a, a, a disciplined journaler. I've been journaling a lot. So that would definitely be in my apocalypse knapsack, my hypothetical apocalypse knapsack. My real one, I have, I have like, real go bags uh, at the crib. 
And I think that everybody needs to get their go bags packed and ready for folks in California who've been facing the, the, the end game of climate change for the last several months. That's very much not a hypothetical thing. But yeah, like, you know, basics like water, first aid, iodine tablets, you know, a decent knife, Swiss Army knife, those type of things, rope. This got really boring and depressing really quickly. <laughs> There's someone so, who this is very useful very for right now. <laughs> and that and that person is me. <laughs> so people, I'll, I'll send you all, and, and you know, we should, for folks that are listening to the show, there's a an Octavia Butler-inspired go-bag checklist that a friend of mine sent me. Uh, that is the most you thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> the, like, the, the Butlerian uh, go-bag. Yeah, I mean, and I, I did research, you know, because I'm also a nerd, I did research on, like, a lot of different types of go-bags. So I have one that has, a like, a built-in canteen at the bottom that stores water. You know, my husband, Damon, who you both know, is, like, he, like goes down to like get some extra dog food or whatever and is like why are there these like military grade industrial book bags like sitting by the door and I'm like because you know you stay ready you don't ever gotta get ready um another one I, I want to throw in is like uh, I have a really good AMFM radio that also charges phones it's like a hand yeah. crank thing uh there's FEMA checklists like there's lots of Red Cross checklists and stuff online also for for folks like just thinking about the basics I mean everybody learns their lesson about toilet paper but like toothpaste tampons like what are the things that you need if you couldn't get supplies outside of your house for two or three months like would you have i recently bought a generator <laughs> i i'm really i'm really revealing myself here i don't i don't play um so you two and nobody else who's listening uh you are both invited to the crib in case of an apocalypse showdown Ooh, nobody I've else the rest of y'all <laughs> Yeah, rest y'all. I'm like Henny Penny. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you weren't with me baking the bread. And so <laughs> you don't get to come through and eat the apocalypse bread. I'm fine. But, but you two are invited. I've always felt like I don't get invited to parties that everyone else gets invited to. And this is like the <laughs> ultimate. I just got invited to the party. So that's Yeah, you. you're invited to my apocalypse party. I do need you to bring like an axe okay. or a baseball bat. I did buy a baseball uh, bat in the last two months that I keep in my car. Good. Now, so we're set. That's partially good. for that's protection good. and partially because sometimes I pass the batting cages. Honestly, Daniel, the idea of something going down and you jumping out of your car and like twirling a baseball <laughs> bat around is like just the best. And I'll be honest with you, part of my apocalypse thing, you know, for much of my life, I was really planning for the zombie apocalypse. Mm. And so I was thinking a lot about like, how do we take the high ground? And like, how do we make a fortress? And the pandemic apocalypse was not as much in my plans, but I do think that the apocalypse preparation is transferable. Mm. But yeah, like food, water, communication, think about all those things. Everybody needs to have an emergency plan. Everybody needs to have a place that you're going to meet up with your friends and family. Like if you get all those things, I think, are very serious and very real right now. Um, and remember that, like all important and good things, this is very Afrofuturist, not only in the sense that people like Octavia Butler have been preparing us for this moment, but actually, like, <laughs> the original apocalypse preparation was, like, enslaved people being like, I have to run north to what is essentially an alien planet, that existence of which is only rumored to me. I have to leave behind everything and everybody I've ever known and loved and like pack what I can take to live in the swamps for the next question mark days and weeks and try to come out on the other side as like a full human being, mm. you know? Mm. That's our lineage, you know? Uh, once again, to make things unnecessarily dramatic and somber as I tend I mean, to do, but yeah. As usual, we're all thinking it. You're the one who says it. <laughs> Uh, and to, to that point, here's my offering in addition to the baseball bat. I have a very well curated series of dropped pins on the U.S.-Canada border. Ooh, that's real good. Where the river is real small, 
uh, so it could be forded. So I, I'm willing to share my dropped pin. I feel regretful that I don't know if we talked about this last time, but I've been meaning for a long time to take the the language proficiency exam that you have to take for Canadian mm. citizenship because you have to prove that you're proficient in either English or French. And apparently the English test is like low key kind of hard. So <laughs> I feel like you, you... yeah, I'm really good at English. <laughs> I'm really good at it. But um, all right. But yeah, you speaking know, of, speaking of studying in school and and, and important <laughs> tests, let's uh and tests. yeah, let's get into it. Um, so. Over the last seven episodes, we've had some of my favorite conversations that we've ever had on the show, especially with people who I didn't know beforehand. It's been so great getting to know like a really amazing swath of thinkers. So thank you, first of all, for helping to make that happen. Yay. And I think the idea here is just to like kind of check in on some of the stuff that jumped out to us. Uh, I know you had brought up some themes in the first episode. But yeah, so... Well, can I ask you guys a question? Yeah, yeah. Can I ask Let's you an it. interview question? Okay. Okay, because nobody ever interviews you. Okay, 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 <laughs> okay. So um, what is the most surprising thing that you learned from the conversations you had during the education suite? Ooh. So there's like big picture ideas, but then there's like a couple facts uh, LaRue Dumi Lewis McCoy shared the fact that more black students are educated in the suburbs than in cities in the United States. That definitely is something that like, not just is a fun fact I didn't know, but has shifted my thinking about a lot of like organizing, not just around schools, but also just taking those spaces more seriously and the disjointed nature of suburbs, right? So Dane, you and I have been talking about even in police defunding organizing, like, yes, there's CPD. And then like, they've decentralized all of these departments in all these small towns, the unique challenges of that decentralization. Um, and, and so him saying that got me thinking about it in a different way. Yo, and some of those suburban police departments are like brazy and have even less, like they are out here doing all kinds of like grimy stuff. And then they don't, they have even less accountability, even less transparency and definitely less media attention yeah. than CPD for sure. How about you, Dame? What's, what surprised you? I don't know if it surprised as much like stuck with me. Uh, was the point that essay was making uh, about how really the infrastructure of university policing is a like post 60s formation to quell dissent, which then kind of like connects to like, oh, and then the first SWAT team was in the 60s to raid a Panther office and just how recent these forms of militarization are. Um, yeah. And how explicit yeah. the state university system and therefore, but all police systems, but the state university system is in terms of just like crowd control and a way to counter dissent. It, that's not a surprise. Like that's something that like I could easily lean into, but that's stuck with me as like a claim that's really important in terms of how we tell the history of education. Yeah, that's so important. I mean, I think in all these policing conversations, the recency thing is such an important point to hit on because people just have really short memories right and folks don't folks don't know like when we talk about imagining a world without xyz some of these worlds were like our parents <laughs> world or our grandparents world you know and i think you're right that campus police like say the quiet part loud a little bit the things that we know to be true about police generally they just make it so barren and obvious in ways that i think make that fight like a really important front on the 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 uh, fight to change the way people think about policing. Hmm. So, you know, some of these conversations also line up with the things that have happened since the first week of September. And 
Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but some shit's gone down and has happened. Mm, <laughs> um, mm. and, and so I'm curious for you, as the semester has kicked into action and you've been teaching and also encountering your institution or even talking to other people at other institutions also, if we don't want to be specific in it, how have you seen those spaces that you had familiarity with changing in response to this moment too? You know, I think that one of the things that's really exciting. This for me is also in the realm of like, it's not a surprise per se, but it's, I'm grateful to see it articulated in new ways. To me, universities are contested spaces that I sort of refuse to completely yield the right to definition to the people that are most proximal to harmful systems of power. So what I mean by that is like, we're all part of things that we acknowledge to be terrible, right? Like Chicago, we live in a city that we love very, very deeply and that we also recognize has this like deeply entrenched legacy of constant harm and oppression, right? Uh, pain and suffering. And we're, we're fighting against that because we say, no, we get to define what this city is. We don't just yield to other people's definitions. We get to say. And I think about that in terms of schools. Like one of the things when y'all and I had our first conversation, I talked about the fact that like, I don't say things like I want to abolish schools. I, I, for some reason, still believe in possibilities of schooling systems, even though I recognize that they have done terrible things because I'm saying we, uh, once again, we have the right to assert what we want this to be. And I think that I've never been really interested in the university as a site for my own personal political work because I'm just like, look, these institutions are so white supremacist and so rooted in elitism and so rooted in such terrible things that I don't really have energy for that. I want to use the resources that the places provide to look externally and to do outward facing work. I've been so inspired by the number of students that I have right now, the number of students across the country, um, the number of faculty members, the number of staff members who often get erased um, from these conversations because there's like a very classist divide between faculty and staff. So many people that are all kind of on the same page right now, right? And like like at the University of Chicago, which just is this like this violent brutally racist history and present, right? That we have our, our students are just doing incredible radical organizing work. They are, you know, working in partnership and in tandem with allies and colleagues and accomplices across the South side. Our librarians came out and issued a letter where they were like, we need to defund the police because how can we say that we're a space of learning and we don't even have money for our library and we don't even know how much of the budget is going to the police, right? Like staff members emailing me and like, and so I'm kind of like, at some point, are we the majority, <laughs> right? Like, is this yeah. an issue In these where, particular spaces, yeah. yeah. In these particular spaces, like, and, and if that's the case, you know, then it's it's really both frustrating and empowering because you realize that there are concentrated centers of power of people who can be extremely obstructionist in keeping things from moving forward. But then it's also like, I do believe in people power. I do believe in, you know, our collective possibility. And so that's just been really exciting for me to have folks at University of Chicago and, you know, University of California and University of Pennsylvania having conversations nationally and from all these different perspectives coming forward and saying specifically the issue of policing, we can't move forward like this. And I think that some of the colleagues that show up in these conversations for me, I'm like, oh, I really wouldn't have expected you to be here. It's not just all like, you know, the usual rabble rousers at the periphery or whatever, who we just stand on the outside throwing tomatoes. Uh, it's a lot of people. And so that's been really 
inspiring for me. And I think that that's part of like a broader cultural shift that's happening right now about the way people are thinking about abolition. I think that, you know, at some point we should dig into like whether here or now or like later on over group text or whatever. But I do want to still dig into this like abolition versus defunding thing and how we moved from abolition to defunding because I kind of have thoughts about that. Real fast also. Real fast, real, real quick, overnight. Monday it was abolition, Tuesday it was defunding. <laughs> I don't know. I missed the memo. But yeah, I think it's just a really inspiring moment in that regard. Mm. I have another question yeah. for you all. Is You're that gonna okay? have, it's going to be a real question? power struggle. So please push to get me to not jump to asking you another question. Okay, okay. This will be my last no. question. So uh, in the classroom, I often use this prompt. Uh, I used it as a middle school teacher and I use it in university now, uh, which is I used to think, but now I think. And it's helpful for like, you know, misconceptions or uh, different ways that your thinking has been reframed by something or different kind of ideological points of view that have come into your head. So I'm curious to know from you all if your perspectives have changed on anything. If you're like, I used to think this, but now I think this. I love it. I'm ready to go. I used to think my critique of schools as an institution was a rejection from my own like discomfort or insecurity in the space. Uh, but now I think that this is actually a very common way of thought and approach to how we redress the further reproduction of humanity and society. So that was what, what was striking for me is I was expecting like, okay, we would have Stovall as our base and kind of like, you know, flutter around with like different perspectives. But I felt that there was actually a much closer continuum and we were all coming from the same place of critique with very similar questions getting us to like some kindred answers so i felt i felt less like just some snot-nosed kid that likes to throw rocks at the wall like you know in in a tradition of thought that is being activated in ways that like i'm not seeing day to day at like the you know the deepest level of time investment into intellectual work wait so daniel before if i could ask you to hold your thought because i have a a follow-up question to what you just said babe well first of all (laughs) There's a little bit of selection bias Absolutely. there because obviously the people that I hang yeah. with, y'all were like, send us some yeah, of your people. Yeah, yeah. And the people that I hang with are like, hello, schools are trash. Yeah. And so I'd like to spend the rest of my life trying to untrash them. Uh, but I'm curious to know for you what some of those threads were or what you feel like some of the kindred. I like that you said something like kindred answers mm-hmm. or kindred responses were. So I, I think a lot of it was there was an absence of certain things so that there was no even like secondary support of like academic excellence. So like the idea of like getting Mm. really, really good at these subjects or going beyond like, oh, it's not that the test don't teach us to be better at history or biology, but like the actual way in which we are approaching this knowledge is in in itself the the, the thing we need to be questioning or poking at. It's the problem, yeah. Um, and so, for example, like connecting S.A. Smythe's and Janie Pochelle's approach around nation, citizenship, indigeneity, di- diaspora, right? Like those threads overlapping uh, a- as a way to see the world more as like a classroom and the way that before we even get to blank ps right like whatever public school or whatever university the nation state itself um is this like anti-educational force Mm. and and therefore Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. the classroom is just a site of placing 
this like colonial genocidal project. I thought that was something that like would be on the the periphery, but felt very central in all the conversation. Does that ring true for you, Daniel? Yeah, for sure. I mean, and it was fun to kind of get there organically because it wasn't what we were like. We have to talk about this in connection to the nation state. But as we move toward not solutions, but like from naming the problems to actually getting to some people who are doing some generative work in a really different way uh, for the young people that they mentor and teach and, and are facilitating that space for, just as always, you have to get to the root. Yeah. You have to go back to the foundation. Um, and so to go there and not get stuck there and not in a place of discard, but in this generative place of like, it's actually very simple. What Janie got to was like, you should know what this land is. You should know how people live here. And, you know, she said this great quote about like when, when people are in opposition or arguing with her and they're not like, they're being willfully like challenging to claims of like indigenous thought as necessary. Her response is often like, you don't even know where you are. Like, mm. That's deep. And, and and that as like a good starting point for what education can look like. Yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's so dope. And it's just like a great mic drop. <laughs> and so so Daniel, what what do you have a I used to think but now I think. Sure. Um well the first one's a little flippant but it's true. I used to think that I enjoyed college. <laughs> um, <laughs> but now but now I think that the openings up of different worlds and ways of thinking to me my focus on that or my like holding to that also didn't leave space for me to see the ways that even in you know dame you said at some point in one of these episodes like yes obviously it's a very privileged position but the dehumanization of being a student even in, in the academy like has a real effect and we i mean we see it on people's mental health we see it on their physical selves what they do out of that and you know i was not well yeah <laughs> for a big yeah. chunk of that time and you know some of that is just getting older and knowing myself better but it's also like there were real dehumanizing experiences in a place that yeah also had a lot of like not accidental but more fugitive liberatory mm. moments as well for mm. me yeah, I think that that's not like a contradiction in terms at all, the idea of it being a privileged space and being a dehumanized space, right? Because it's like you're being asked to participate in something that is fundamentally harmful to you and that then the terms become around the terms of your limited possibilities for survival or escape, right? Uh, to just try to get by within something else that is that is much larger and very broken. Um, that's very real. Thank you both for indulging me and in answering those questions. That concludes my questions. <laughs> so, yes. So something that like another thread that comes out, something that challenges me that I think you probably have thought about more than me. So in all these conversations and the way that I'm starting to think more about education and particularly the development of children, um, again, like the notion of any type of standard knowledge base, the notion of the academic subjects 
have little to no importance, right? Like I think from LaRue and, and Stovall, like I think what, what they name a lot is like the push for black education has been about self-determination. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've seen in every space and site uh, that self-determination meets some type of resistance or oppression or smackdown or extraction uh, or just like, you know, hierarchical obstacle. Um, Literally going back to like reconstruction. Yeah, yeah, the whole time, right? But there is an intellectual tradition yeah. that I do value and that I do want to be a part of and I do not know of and I don't know that we ne- necessarily touched on the space to create or develop that. Like what is the holistic or radical v- version of that? Because I think everyone shouldn't have to read complex theory or like, you know, try to go to this dense level of language, but there is value in that space. Right. And you can grab things from there that you can take back without like forcing or judging people based on how they operate in that system. But I don't have a, a counter space outside of just like, hopefully we build community centers. Right. Like right. We, we dopeify it up to that level. Um, so, so like, where is the space for intellectualism beyond academics, I think is a little bit different than the divide between education and schooling, or maybe more specific than the divide mm-hmm. between education and schooling. Oh, that's such a good question. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, you preempted where I was going to take it back to because we talked we talked about the education versus schooling thing, right? Mm-hmm. When we talked before, that's like my stump speech. So I think like that it, was that was there. Every, that was every <laughs> talk. It's already there, right? So so like just to kind of bring that back real quick for folks that are just listening now or for ourselves to this conversation is like uh, education is a thing that humans have always done, will always do. Right. And that can, or, but doesn't necessarily have to take place in institutional schooling spaces. And then schooling is this social political project of this institutional form of kind of like societal indoctrination that sometimes is educational and sometimes isn't. I think you kind of answered the question, Damon, in your formulation of it, which is that this notion of taking back what's useful to you, that there's nothing wrong with being excited or being engaged by an intellectual tradition, right? And if we think about it like etymologically, an intellectual tradition just means the way that people are thinking about things together, right? The way that people are engaging in their intellect. That becomes problematic when we start to have a really narrow and harmful hierarchical notion of what intellect is. Like that's where the problem enters. But I know that this is true about myself and I feel confident saying it's true about you all as well, right? Like so much of our political education, so much of our person education, our heart education, our spiritual education has come from many different spaces. And sometimes it does come from reading a book, right? Sometimes it comes from reading a book that you were assigned in school. That's awesome. (laughs) Other times it comes from a really powerful conversation that you have with somebody, right? Like both of you, since my grandmother passed, I've had really meaningful conversations with both of you where I feel like I'm learning things about myself and learning things about grief, learning things about Mm -hmm. ancestry. Like that's on my like curriculum as a human. That's on my human curriculum. (laughs) And it's funny being in a place where in terms of like this other type of schooling, I'm very quote unquote advanced, right? Like there's no more school I can do. I've done all the school that anybody can do to the point where I feel like you're going to find something. Well, I wouldn't, (laughs) I've thought about going to culinary school, but other than that, you know, there's, there's, I'm out of school. Like there's, but like auto mechanical school, like (laughs) all the vocations just go down the list. Yeah. But but like, (laughs) but, but in this other way, I feel such a novice. One of the biggest things I've learned since losing my grandmother a month ago is like a little over a month ago is like 
my own novice status in these other things that I feel are equally essential to the project of me trying to be a human. I'm very much a novice at grief. I am very much a novice at um, ancestral ritual practices. I'm going about learning those things the same way I would go about learning anything else. I'm reading about it. I'm asking questions. I'm trying different things. I'm experiencing what it feels like to not be great at something and then to try it and then to refine it. And that's how I feel about baking. That's how I feel about friendship. That's how I feel about playing music, something that I love to do that is very hard for me that I'm not great at, right? And so I think that we shouldn't have shame. Like if you read some deep, like theoretical, whatever, whatever, like super thick, dense library book that you got from a university or whatever, and it speaks to you, that's powerful. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. And I think that the question is then, how do you instrumentalize that in your own life in a way that makes you feel closer to your own humanity and that uplifts your community, right? The question is how we build learning spaces that authenticate and valorize, celebrate and uplift and legitimize all of those forms of knowledge where I can say like, yeah, I read this, you know, theoretical treatise on whatever, whatever, like racial capitalism. uh, And it reminded me of this thing that my grandpa said, you know, and that we can synthesize those things. And I deeply value those learning spaces. I try very, very humbly. I don't know that I always succeed, but I try to make learning spaces like that in my professional work. Um, I try to uplift and celebrate and encourage students to share things about their personhood and their family. And that for me is part of a Black feminist practice. That for me comes from Audre Lorde. That comes from critical race theory, right? Like these are not ideas that are new to me. The idea that our our familial and ancestral knowledges should be part of our institutional learning spaces. So I try to live into that. But I think the question is like, you know, school is a compulsory place with a building and like a classroom. And I think what's exciting to me Damon is like how we make spaces like that, that are fulfilling and that are far reaching in the ways that you're talking about. And to a certain extent, like freedom schools have done that, right? Like the history of freedom schools is doing exactly this. Um, But what would it look like for us to continue to build those spaces? And I'm in the coming months, I'm developing some kind of like, I guess what I consider experiments around that. I'm going to be putting forth, this is an exclusive ergo announcement. (laughs) Talk about it. I'm I'm designing oh, wow. a, a series of lectures called the, the Black Freedom Lectures, which is going to be uh, Black scholars thinking about interdisciplinary questions of Blackness that go beyond what we like kind of the 101 stuff, uh, open to everybody, but thinking about questions like Blackness and fat phobia, Blackness and climate change, Blackness and ableism, right? And uh, what I'm thinking about for this lecture series is I want to have these like guest speakers that are scholars, whatever, whatever. So I want people to form like learning squads with whoever, your coworkers, your friends, your neighbors, who, you know, your old college classmates, your book club. Uh, I want people to like attend the the lecture virtually. And then I'm going to have each lecturer give us like a chapter or a book or an article or something that we can read. Then you go back to your squad and have a conversation with them. And then the speaker comes back a second time and does a Q&A based on questions that people submit. So that's like something that I'm toying with. And y'all can look out for those announcements to come. But basically like what I'm trying to do with that is I think a lot of the, the webinar stuff 
stuff that's happening right now is very cool. But what's missing is like a continued opportunity for engagement. That's not like just you sitting and listening to a video and then like maybe getting in a question, a Q&A and maybe not. Like, what does it look like to hear somebody speak, then go to the text, then go to your friends, then come back to the person with a question, right? I'm, I'm trying to experiment to answer exactly the question that you're asking. And I think also as with all things, how do we look back at our ancestral traditions, right? Thinking broadly, using the word ancestry broadly here. And, you know, some of the first freedom schools was like, people would show up and they'd be like, what do you need to know? I'm a sharecropper and I need to know how to read the paperwork that they're giving me that tells me allegedly how much cotton I picked, right? And if I'm being screwed over or not. And like, I need to know how to pass the literacy test. I need to know how to basically game the literacy test so that I can go vote, right? Like, these are the kinds of functional spaces that our people have always built. And so how do we valorize those spaces and formalize them? Sorry, this is like becoming an extended rant, but I'll give you one other example. So Jason Perez, who's all of our mutual friend, Jason, man, talk about like dense intellectual theoretical (laughs) stuff. Jason be reading a book. Jason be reading. He'd be reading. And one thing that I don't know if a lot of people know publicly is like Jason was very uh, seminal in my own political education. My first teaching job. When I was 19 years old, I was hired by the Chinese Mutual Aid Association and I was teaching uh, zine writing like it was a writing class. uh, And I was teaching like uh, to young people from uptown and I was doing the writing part. And Jason was like the political education part. And he's not Jason is like five years older than me. So at the time I was like 19 and he was like 24. Right. So Mm -hmm. basically I was a child and he was a whole grown adult and (laughs) his daughter was like a baby, you know, and so. So Jason taught me a lot of things. He's always been very important in my political education. So yesterday I I texted him and I was like, Jason, do you have five minutes today to educate me? And he said, yes, because he's very kind. And I pulled up one of these, you know, he reads a lot of like dense black socialist literature and uh, posted on Instagram. And I was like, Jason, I read this paragraph seven times. I think I understand <laughs> Up until this sentence, can I talk to you about this? Like, can you explain this to me? And I feel comfortable being in that learning space with him and not being like, well, I'm a professor and I'm what, you know, I was just like, I just really need to ask my homie what this means because I'm not trying to front on Instagram sharing things that I don't understand what they're saying, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And so I just, that's an example to me. That's like a micro moment of just being like, can I talk to you about this? And I think this goes back to something that all three of us have talked about a lot, a lot, a lot, which is the ways that like our relationships matter so much. And I think like not to be the detractor of social media and be a curmudgeon, but like... No, this is a curmudgeon friendly space. I've gotten (laughs) on this horse really strong recently. You You know what I'm about to say, right? Which is that like, it's my 15 year relationship with Jason that allows me to go to Jason. And in that moment, if I had said something truly bonkers, if I was like, Jason, I think that... A woman's place is in the home, whatever. Like if I had just said something (laughs) wild, I believe that Jason would engage with me. There's money in the bank, right? Like we have an accrued relationship. And that doesn't mean that at a certain point he shouldn't be like, you know, I can't mess with Eve no more because she's talking about wild things. But it just it just means that what does it mean when we engage with each other in our mutual educational efforts in a way that is based in relationships and in a way that is also based in the understanding that we have shared goals, right? And so That's how I think at at my best as a student, 
And as a teacher, that like the best classrooms I've ever been a part of on either side of that equation have been where I feel like we are really trying to do something together. Like we are on an adventure together and we have space to mess up. We have space to be wrong because we're we're in it. Like we are trying to build this ship and sail it somewhere beautiful, you know? And mm. that's what I'm always striving for. That's for me like teacher euphoria where I feel like we're, people can't see me because it's a podcast. I'm doing all this <laughs> emphatic gesturing about like we're going. You look going. like you're actually rowing that yeah, boat that you like were Yeah, like we're going, about. we're going, we're going forward yeah. together, you know? And so that's, whether our metaphorical oars in that situation, whether they come from the library, whether they come from the streets, whether they come from our grandmothers, whether they come from, you know, Karl Marx or Pierre Bourdieu, you know, or Audre Lorde or, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois or Zora Neale Hart. Like, to me, that's actually immaterial. It's the question you asked initially, Damon, which is like, how are we using these things? What are they doing? You know, and mm. and mm. in what ways always, 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 always care Right. Like how how are those practices rooted in care? So I apologize that that became like a 30 minute manifesto. Oh, but it's beautiful. And I'm really excited. Like if you all want to talk about that more. And I hope that's something that listeners will think about, like, what does it look like to build those spaces? Because it's cool to talk about. But, you know, is it a book club? Is it a weekly right. whatever? Is it just a text your homie and ask a question? How can we make space for this? Also in ways that are low stakes and accessible, given that all of us yeah. are also like literally our lives are in peril every day and we're hungry and tired and depressed uh yeah but to that to that point not the hungry tired and depressed <laughs> part, that part rings true but what you described to me feels like the move from learning from to learning with right yeah you know i don't actually read a lot of those books those big dusty books um and definitely feel some of that like embarrassment or shame and i'm like but I know the ideas because I hear it from the people who have read and like I watch the thing like the de-stigmatizing and, and it doesn't yeah. mean that you get to just not be informed and say whatever you want. But the idea of like if someone shares something with you that they've learned, you've learned it too. Right. <laughs> yeah, That's exactly. not different. That's the whole point right. of learning. That's what learning <laughs> so that you can is. Share it. Yeah. Can, can I gas y'all slightly on that on that? Tip? Sure. So I'm sorry. Real quick. This is the moment where I'm introducing the new uh, gas someone up sound effect. Oh, okay. Ha- I've been meaning to do it, and it's happening right Whoa. now in your honor. Oh, is it gross? No, it's I haven't made it yet. But oh, okay. It's going to be good. someone like like hitting the gas. Oh, okay, car, like, cool, cool. Vroom. Okay, I'm into it. I'm into it. <laughs> I'm into very it. excited about this. I wasn't sure about the direction it was going to take, so I feel good about that direction. <laughs> I feel good. I feel good. I feel good. I feel good. Great. 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 So, so just like not to gas y'all, but like, I, I really feel that, that ergo and other, like also, for example, Paige and Monica's podcast, Mm -hmm. I think, I think that people are using many different modalities of teaching and learning as ways of engaging people accessibly with these ideas. And I, I think that, that what you all do is you bring people on you bring them on because you know you you share something, right? Like you're not bringing on like, you know, white supremacists or whatever. Like you're bringing people on because you know you have a shared stake. But most of your guests, the orientation that you all bring to the conversation, now that you've moved past like the corral of homies, right? Although some of us still get to make an appearance from time mm-hmm. to time. Uh, <laughs> you know, the the orientation that you all have in your questioning is like, Please teach me about the tools and the questions that you are using right now for our shared liberation. And Mm -hmm. you enter it from the presumption within that question that like 
we're working on our shared liberation. And I know Mm -hmm. that you have some different tools or some different strategies. So I'm inviting you into space to please talk to us about that. And then I'm creating this conversational moment where I get to be a novice. One of my mentors, he used to talk about how when we write education policy, when we write about education, we have to assume a naive but intelligent reader. I'm naive Mm. in that I just happen to not know. Like, I just happen to not know. But I'm intelligent. I'm engaged. I'm motivated. And so you all ask these questions uh, from this shared sense of motivation towards liberation. And then the guests are incredible because they do the work of opening up and not shaming your questions, right? Because mm-hmm. they understand that that you, your questions come from a, a, a certain perspective of, you know, shared collective liberation. And I think that like modeling that is really important. And so it ends up being a really profound educational tool because you're giving people a chance to have like an entry level conversation, which is really rare. Um, but it's, it's, not quite entry level because a lot of other media formats is entry level in the sense of like, so don't police keep us safe. And it's like, well, okay, let's, <laughs> let's move from, so that's like a waste of time, right? It's like everybody has taken the 101 class and then they're now right. here for the next level. And I think that that is like both very informative, but also models a kind of learning interaction that I've, that I find very powerful and inspiring. And I think that that too is a form of educational space. It, it's a, it's mm-hmm. not just a thing that has to happen, you know, uh, in a classroom or, or whatever. That's very humbling. Um, And also, I think, like, has been the intent. Like, we've kind of decided, like, oh, shit, this might not be entertainment anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that's still the, like, uh, the the keyword category that I use when I post the podcast. And it's, like, right next to learning also on the (laughs) Isn't there a politics? There's not a politics option? I know, but I don't want us thrown in with that. Wow. You don't want to be with the Joe Rogan? You don't want to be with the Joe Rogan? Yeah, yeah, no. Get that shit out of here. (laughs) Though he might be in the entertainment, too. But I think that was, like, our thing. It was, like, we're going to make something that's entertaining that people learn from and then we kind of became like oh no like this is the way we learn so why should we not take that seriously for others well the other thing is that everybody has something to teach right so like i remember one of the earliest ergo episodes i remember listening to uh was a kenya uh, you know, who is an incredibly talented for listeners who don't know, who need to take it back to the Ergo archives. Kenya is <laughs> very talented singer. And I remember exactly where I was when I was listening to this episode. I was running, I was running down Columbus Avenue in Boston. And it was so memorable for me because Kenya was talking about like music theory and like conservatory and all these mm-hmm. things that I just didn't know anything about, you know? <laughs> and so it was very memorable to me. But in talking about those things, she's also talking about like being a black woman in these kind of elite spaces. She's also talking about who gets to make music. She's also talking about, you know, blurring the lines between what it means to be classically trained and not like, and so for folks that really adhere to like very liberatory models of education, that's also like a basic premise, right? That all of us can be teachers and all of us can be learners. And it gets really messy and difficult when you try to enact that in a classroom space, especially with young children, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that as a premise, it's it's really powerful and it's also just true. The person who taught me how to tie my shoes uh, was my neighbor, Javier. I was five Shout years old. Shout out to Javier. Shout out to Javier. Mm-hmm. Javier taught me to tie my shoes. The person who taught me how to ride a bike was my neighbor, Desiree. Both of them were a strong... 12 to 13 years old, right? But like, we know that young people teach each other. We know that as peers and as friends, we teach each other. So I think it's really high time that we start legitimizing those moments as being what they are, which is education. Those moments are education, you know? I really appreciate that that notion of like the collective learning around our liberation. 
Thank you, one, for that blurb that we're going to definitely, like, yeah. block quote <laughs> and, and disseminate through the world. Put it in like, all your grant applications. But, you know, some of that, I think, was developed through practice and through kind of just, like, some of the shared skills we have. Some of that became, like, conscious and intentional, so just, like, ground in the tradition of uh, how we got to doing some of this, like, new model of educational media uh is definitely paulo freire uh definitely grace lee boggs and jimmy snap boggs, snaps snap um, snaps ella baker and bob moses right like there there was an intentionality once we wanted to talk about what we're doing um that those were then the sources we pulled from and realized that this reciprocal subject-centered learning as a liberatory model was what we were doing without like print text. Um, and so for folks who want to continue the education, like if you're not already familiar with those thinkers who are really these cultural worker organizer hybrids that created these liberatory education models, those are great, great sources to go to. Yeah, I'm snapping. I'm snapping so viciously and enthusiastically at the names of all those dope people. And I really appreciate what you're saying about not print based as well. I mean, that's like a whole other conversation we could have. But I think like part of the latent tension in the earlier question you asked, uh, Damon, and also Daniel, when you were like, well, I haven't read some of these books, is just the assumption that real knowledge and real facts live in books. And real knowledgeable people are the people that read those books, right? Now, I happen to love books. I'm a, I am a hardcore bibliophile. Wow, we're going to get some like anti-book e-viewing. I know, no, I, I love, wild. I'm, I'm here to say that I truly love books. Books have been there for me. But I also recognize that like, I believe that before you're born, there's a, a, a wheel that spins. There's some dice that roll. You happen to be born into like a random modality through which you learn best, right? There are people for whom that is like spatial. There are people for whom that's kinesthetic using their body. There are people for whom that's visual or musical. And I happen to be great with books. It's just so arbitrary that we live in a society that only valorizes that mode of learning above everything else. And it just doesn't make any sense, right? And so, <laughs> So I think that more and more we need to be using every single tool that we have at our disposal to teach and engage people in these conversations. You know, even thinking about theater, theatrical performance, thinking about like great protest songs of the 60s, uh, people from Woody Guthrie to Chuck D, right, have been trying to use music as, as a space to do this kind of political education. That's quite a collab, by the way. Quite, <laughs> quite the collab, right? Um yeah, I think that it's too urgent for us to not use every single tool at our disposal. And it's too urgent for us to be snotty about uh, uplifting some things over others. Now, I will say books have some benefits. Number one, once you own a book, you don't need any additional technology to access it. That is a great thing about mm -hmm. books. Number mm -hmm. two, books are a durable good. So, you know, you can have one book and it can be used by many, many people over a long period of time. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think that books have some, some benefits, uh, but, you know, they're not the end all be all of like educational transmission. I think it's really a foolhardy uh, waste of time to think that that's the case. So one of the big takeaways I have is all education spaces are more or less failing if they are not preparing people to be their liberated most human self. Agree. If we use, you know, abolition of the carceral state as like the tangible example of that, right? Like our education spaces are failing if they are not preparing people to be the creators and live in a world without police and prisons, right? The type of people we want, that's what our education space should be doing. Uh, now, a dynamic that LaRue mentioned that I think 
is parallel to a lot of other historic Black spaces. Much like our churches, much like our political movements, the the orchestrators and the coordinators and the practitioners of it's education too many dudes. is women, right? Oh, yeah, At the base yeah. level. But then Black men are disproportionately put in this position of like the CEO of the charter school right, or right. the principal without the like even same proficiency. Um, and then I think about how the fact that like the classroom is such a genderous place, like the boys line and girls line. And particularly, I think in black schools, um, there is a way in which gender conflict is brought in f- from the preschool kindergarten age and then reinforced within the space similar to like the, the masculine pastor or the masculine stump speech giver um, dependent upon an army of women that are taking care of the business. And so, yeah, how do we address the ways in which our education spaces, similar to our other social spaces, are reinforcing patriarchal dominance? Yeah, I think that once again, the, the answer is in the question. One thing we know is that Black people are not immune from the many other ways that humans can enact harm and cruelty upon one another. Uh, We know that generally people who are marginalized because of one aspect of their social identity are not immune from being vectors of harm in other ways, right? We know that gay people can be racist, right? We know that Black people can be ableist, right? We know that disabled people can be transphobic and so on and so forth. And so none of us are free of the obligation of, on the one hand, you know, trying to uplift ourselves and our people based on the identities that matter to us and the communities that matter to us, while at the same time committing ourselves to recognizing the ways we've internalized forms of harm, uh, cruelty, and oppression towards other people. And so educational spaces are not immune from that. And I think that the solutions for them in education are the same as they are everywhere else. We have to have a shared commitment to having these tough conversations, a shared commitment to reexamining our politics, reexamining our structures of leadership, reexamining the way we talk to each other. I do think that the stakes are are a little higher in schools, though, because of the reasons that you mentioned, which is that, like, for some reason, there's a lot of bizarre gender stuff that happens in schools. And I think it's because schools are already the place where people work out their social and cultural and political anxieties. And therefore, as our culture has a lot of anxieties around gender, then schools become the place where it's somehow, like, vital to reinforce gender binaries in really strange and unnecessary ways. Like, who came up with the girls' line and the boys' line? What is that about? You know, (laughs) just the weird, like, okay, boys and girls. Like, there's just so much weird gender stuff that happens in schools. And also, by the way, it's it becomes challenging for parents. So I had a conversation with a friend of mine recently uh, who's a parent of a young child, and she found this really great, like, Black-affirming school for her child and was really upset when the teacher told her child that, you know, boys don't wear dresses. Um, and she was like, you know, I worked really hard to try to find a school that would be affirming in this regard. But on the other hand, they're reinforcing ideas about gender that are not what we're trying to teach in our household. And so, you know, I think that's where parents and everybody has to step in and say, like, what are the ideologies that we want to be putting forth in schools? And how do we build the spaces that are reflective of those kinds of liberatory ideologies? And also just to get over some of the preciousness people have about kids, like, the explanation or the excuse for a lot of that stuff is like, oh, well, it's too complicated or too confusing for kids, you know? And that's just whack. Like, for one thing, like, you don't know 
know who the trans kid is in your class. You don't know who the intersex or the queer kid is in your class. And so you're just uh, failing to make a space that is hospitable and kind for that child, which is also part of your job, right? So that's the first thing. And the second thing is that, like, have you met a kid recently? When I was in second grade, I went to school and I told my friends that a doctor had told me that I was part dog and that I had a rare illness that I was going to turn into a dog any day. Right. And this was just like an elaborate, like the number of bizarre, elaborate fantasies (laughs) that I came to school and, and said, you know, on any given day, like. Kids are kids are kids. They can handle weird stuff. They make up weird stuff. They do weird stuff. They're weird, you know? And so the idea that, you know, we need to protect them and we need to give them this oversimplified binaristic view of the world that's somehow for their own good is really harmful to the students who are already existing outside of those binaries. But it's also just like underestimating the incredible intellectual capacities of of kids and how magical and amazing they are, you know? Yeah. <laughs> And then there, is there a way that we can connect that thread to then some of the like administration or the organization of the school and some of this like the dynamic between the hyper presence of masculine leadership, air quote? Well, I want to be specific. I think that there are black educators that are doing anti-black racist stuff in schools, right? There are women educators that are doing backwards patriarchal stuff in schools. So some of this has to transcend identity. It also has to be about like, what are the politics and ideologies of those individual people? But I'm going to be real, real specific. I don't know, you know, maybe this is part of what LaRue was nodding towards. I think that there is a version of what black liberation looks like that is very misogynistic. That's in schools. That's in our culture generally. And I think that that has to do with like um, the fact that people see the specific ways in which black boys are harmed in our school spaces, which is really important to understand and to uplift and to acknowledge. Um, But they think that the solution to that is a kind of like 1950s patriarchal, like black leadership, magical black man who's going to come fix it by like this, like Joe Clark figure. And it's really an extension of here being an example, just out here (laughs) shining, just, you know, and it's really an extension of the idea that like the problem with black people is that we don't have enough fathers in the home. Like it's really just an extension of that exact same logic. And I think that that logic is just bad. It doesn't add up. You know, and it's it's harmful to to us as a people. And so I think we just really need to be careful for that. And this is where I'm going to get in some hot water. There are a lot of people who say that they're doing black liberation education and their vision of that is so patriarchal in ways that they do not see. And they get a lot of airtime and they get a lot of shine because what they're doing makes people feel good by appealing to a notion of like patriarchal respectability that people like and that is ready for consumption. I'm not going to name the names of the people or the institutions that are doing that, but I think but we'll it is- put them in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's very, I will put that in the group text after, but I think it's very harmful. And, um, you know, I'll say one, I'm going to shout out a colleague, uh, I have a colleague named Cesare Warren who actually recently relocated back to Chicago, um, who maybe y'all should have on the show. But uh, he wrote a book called Urban Preparation that is about some of the ways that uh, that there are very harmful patriarchal notions and respectability based notions that um, that go into some of this allegedly uplifting and liberatory education. So I'll shout out shout out to Cesare. 
um, and to other folks that are that are doing that work. The folks that are calling it out are people of all genders, you know, and I appreciate and see that that call out. Um, it's super, super whack. It's up there with black capitalism in terms of my like least favorite, like false prophets of black liberation. Did y'all know that Richard Nixon was really into black capitalism? Yeah, it was um, his chief of staff that wrote the actual book titled Black Capital or someone in his staff. Yeah, that was them. Just as an aside, I feel like to all your favorite rap, like if your favorite rapper, if your favorite person, whatever, if their political path forward is aligned with that of Richard Nixon, I feel like it's time to start asking tough questions <laughs> about, and that's, about the and that's movement. that's not a new like 90s like post p diddy thing that's always been the thing yeah you know who was their biggest like black proponent jackie um, robinson no well he probably was in there james brown yes yes and james brown was in there he was like in the literature wasn't he like he yeah. was out here yeah that's depressing james brown was also in, you know i mean he was a he was, was a mess yeah he was, <laughs> was a mess. he was he was out here um <laughs> I'm shaking my head. The, the listeners can't hear me shaking my head. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's really hard out here to be a black woman because you're just like, I really can't, you can't really can't have nothing. You can't listen to none of these yeah. people. You can't <laughs> watch none of their movies, man. Y'all are so grimy. Yeah. What a disappointment. I think also, I think we kind of landed the plane very well with that reference, though. There is this in, internal tension, maybe even within a school, not even from school to school, of like preparing for Black liberation and preparing for Black capitalism. And that some of those harms are not just from like some external, like, you know, Bill Gates, Arnie Duncan, liberal white man figure, right? Like that is an internal tension and contradiction and limitation that part of this struggle is addressing. Right. And to go back to our earlier point about relationships. So like when I was a teacher, some of the educators that I worked with that were using gender in ways that made me feel very uncomfortable were also doing it because of like a deep-seated love and good intention and also like as mm-hmm. as as black elders in the community right and so like so when they were like you're a young black man xyz you know do this do that dress this way come to this thing we're gonna have this club we're gonna have this mentoring thing we're gonna have this you know we're gonna teach you how to 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 be a man blah 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 those things made me very uncomfortable in certain in a certain sense but also I don't get to like cancel the like 70 year old black woman from this community who's been doing this and who also like would take any of these children into their homes and feed them and clothe them and house them if it came down to it. Right. And so once again, what are the opportunities to be in relation to each other and to be like, hey, can we talk about, you know, how this is maybe helpful in this way and maybe not so helpful in this other way? And, you know, if your goal is to be welcoming and supportive, right? Like, and at the end of the day, some of those kids, and I've heard this from like queer friends as well as as adults, they're like, you hear the place from which that person is coming. And if that person is the only person that's also uplifting you, loving you and making you feel seen in a certain way, you you're kind of like juggling with how to perceive that alongside this, this way in which what they're saying feels harmful. I just think that's complicated. And I think that it's also not good. I don't want like the progressive white liberal 22 year old teacher in Detroit to like go cancel Mrs. Johnson who's running the you know girls leadership club you know it's like let Mrs. Johnson have her like or like let's have a conversation like let's interrogate Mrs. Johnson's club 
Or maybe just let her have the club, you know? Like, Thank you for that. <laughs> Thank you for that audience awareness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let, let Mrs. Johnson and the Young Women's Leadership Empowerment Club on how to be an elite lady, sophisticated, whatever, whatever. Like, you know, it, what are the ways in which it's harmful? What are the ways in which it's not harmful? How do we have that as a conversation? Are you the person to have that conversation? Like, that's mm-hmm. that's all really complicated to me. Real, really complicated. I have one slightly less complicated question, though it actually could be really complicated. <laughs> is it which Halloween candy do I love the most? Is this going to air? This is going to air that after seems Halloween. Easy. This is no. This is going to air You're, Thursday. Are you a candy corn type of? I am a candy corn fan. I am unapologetic. I, my people are marginalized. My people are silenced. My people are disrespected, and I'm not here for it. Somebody made the very good point that if you track the manufacturing of candy corn. Because it's made from corn syrup, it is actually corn. Yes. And for a great many years, candy corn, you know, one of the greatest producers of candy corn is the Brock's Candy Company based right here in Chicagoland. And so if you're a real Chicagoan, you know. What are we going to do about it? That's crazy. I'm just saying. It's wild that you know that. Brock's. Brock's boy. Brock's all day. And then. (laughs) Brock's boy. (laughs) And then real real ones know about Affy Tapples too. Damon, did you used to sell Affy Tapples? I did used to sell them. I didn't eat them, but I I have had (laughs) They're hella good. They're hella, hella good. You know, that's one of those things that you don't know is regional till you grow up and you start trying to talk to people about an Affy Tapple. They don't, they don't know about that. Really? That, that, I didn't, I I didn't know until right now. See, today's years old. We learned that Affy Tapples were global. No, and they're. I might have to go get me an Affy Tapple right now. Here's my last question for okay. you, and then we need to go because my computer's going to die. Okay, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups is the best candy. Great answer. Okay. I have them in the pantry right now. They might not make it to Halloween. Um, how did you find out that you weren't part dog? Like, who broke that to you? <laughs> you know, it was... So one of my best friends in second grade was my friend Greta Hunold, who uh, is a, a great theater artist uh, here in Chicago. And Greta listened very patiently to my made-up dog story. And then only only years later was like, the story made no sense. I don't know, didn't y'all just used to make up wild stuff as kids? Is that just me? I'm sure I did. But Come on. usually, I don't think I could hear myself do it as much as I could hear when other people... like. For some reason, people love to say that their dad is a spy. Like that's like a lie that I heard a lot <laughs> as a kid. That's that's when that's when you have to start asking some questions about what pops is doing because that's the story he came up with. He <laughs> yeah. told them like, oh, I came in I'm it a too. spy. Uh, <laughs> I remember. So I went to Marva Collins growing up. Were you familiar with Marva Collins? Yes, I'm sure you've yes, done some, yes. Some classic. I would love to talk to you about that's that. A, that's an uh, Elizabeth, uh, shout out to the homie Elizabeth Todd Breland, who would really be the expert on that, but yes. For sure. So then I transferred to Mark Park Academy, which is a multiracial school, and I had my cultural shock. In Beverly. So one of the lies, yes. So one of the lies someone told me and then lead to like my life, just like how the space was. So this one kid just one day, John Fitzgerald, I'm going to shout him out. He just one day just walked up to me and told me his dad had died the night before from carbon monoxide poisoning. Oh my god! And I'm like fucked up better for like an hour or two, and then like my recess, he was like, "Yeah, no, I was just that's <laughs> terrible." That you know what's terrible. That's just trash. You know what's and he's funny? Like, the alarm did go off. He had like a whole story. He had a whole spiel. Yeah. Oh, he god. just wanted to. He wanted attention. I think he also might have just learned about carbon monoxide poisoning. But wait, so did you then go tell somebody that? 
I did tell a couple people, but no, oh then here was, here was my, no, not like, I, I was like concerned. Like I was like, yo, oh, gotta, you like, told about John. Yeah. You didn't tell other yeah, people. Yeah, but no, here's my second one. Here's my lie. Okay. No, no, okay. no, 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 no. Here, here's my lie. And it was just because I, at a very young age, I already had a strong distaste for pretentiousness. Okay. So this kid, he was like, one time, this is a little bit of backstory about Andrea Ariana. Andrew you was naming so like, names out here. <laughs> <Yeah>. Andrew <laughs> Ariana and no was so pretentious that in French class, he like started crying and like demanded to be let out because... Wait, hold up, like, hold up. Uh, Damon was out here with fourth grade French. I never want to hear anything about <laughs> the proletariat ever again because <laughs> you were out here with the bourgeoisie <laughs> on some fourth grade French. But do go on. But, but then Andrew got mad that something we were being taught was in rap in French rap these white people were rapping in French and he like started crying and like was upset that rap was being played and then like a few weeks later in French class he like was singing the Menards theme song like (laughs) I forgot saving money money at Menards Menards. and then he then he like tried to like remix it and like say like yeah and it sucks and your your butt will hurt or something like something like spunky like Menards is like for sucky people and I was like my my uncle owns a Menards. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted him to feel really guilty for being pretentious about Menards. Oh my god! <laughs> that was that so was the lie that I remembered oh for years. Oh, now, did it come back to bite you in an unexpected moment when it was no, like, oh, we need I people to donate it. money from a school fundraiser? <laughs> like, Dame, can you ask your uncle who owns Menards? I think th- this could be the moment. It's like apocalypse planning because Menards has some good apocalypse. Oh <laughs> my gosh, like, Dame, you had an uncle i was, hook it up. I was got... street team before you back in the day <laughs> wow i knew i was not the only one making up oddly specific oh, oddly specific lies at school <laughs> my oh. uncle is a franchisee of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was not even like he owns the company <laughs> no. specific, or like works no. in it. it's like because i was like that's I'm believable gone. you can't you can't fact check that <laughs> oh god so there's no internet andrew really push yeah. an envelope of my imagination wow oh, that's great all right all right, Eve. Thank it's you been a journey, friends. <laughs> and it just, in this moment, feels so good to get to talk with a friend. So I know you. this is so cool. Let's have Closet Club again sometime. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Closet, Closet Club. Yes. Club is perfect. Closet Club. Um, <laughs> I don't remember if we asked you this for the first episode, but the way that we closed all these episodes, and we got some really beautiful answers, mostly a lot of like sympathy and empathy. Was the two-part question of one, what's something that you want to say to parents right now or people, not just parents, but people who are looking after and helping kids through this time? Uh, And then the other one was a shout out to a teacher in or out of school that you've carried with you that you want to shout out. And I don't think we asked them to you. I think I came up with them. No, you didn't. Those are great. So something I want to say to grownups that are caring for kids is that I know, uh, It's just really hard on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour, second-by-second basis. And this is going to sound really cliche, but I really think it's true. Everybody's worried right now about, like, is my kid behind? You know, is my kid behind? And it's true that, like, yeah, it's hard to learn fractions. It's hard to learn nouns and pronouns. It's hard to learn the parts of a sentence. I don't want to act like those kinds of things aren't important. And I understand the anxiety that people have around that. But at the end of the day... You can catch your kid up on those things. It's really hard to catch your kid up 
on your relationship to them. And I say this humbly as somebody that is not the primary caregiver of, of any children. So you can take it with a grain of salt. But like all of us, when we think of our families and we think of our parents, we think about the adults that have loved us and made us feel safe and made us feel seen. What we most remember is those moments of, of education, right? Not of schooling, the moments when they taught us something about the kind of people that they are and the kind of people they want us to be and the kind of lives they want us to live. And so that means that whatever you can be doing in your interaction with the children that you love to demonstrate those things, to teach them those things, that's worth so much more right now than, you know, making sure if they know how to like find the lowest common denominator of two fractions, which with common core math is probably even not even a thing anymore. And I'm like using anachronistic language. So there's that. And I, again, like I already mentioned, you know, like the passing of my grandmother and I've been thinking a lot about, uh, today we had like a ceremony, um, for my grandma that my mom wanted us to do. And my grandfather on my other side, my dad's father was there. And I was thinking about both my grandmother and my grandfather on these two different sides of my family and everything they taught me by the way that they move and live in the world, you know, and that's just so powerful and I'm so grateful for it. So just think about like, what are you teaching your kids right now about the way that you want them to move and live in the world and what you want them to remember and know about you, you know, and the kind of person you are, the kind of person you were one day when you're gone. So there's that. In terms of teacher shout outs, um, got a shout out. Okay, so her name is Tamara Driver. I'm going to embarrass her since we're doing like name and names. Current name now is Tamara Driver, but I knew her as Mademoiselle Montgomery because she was my French teacher. Oh, I clowned hey. you about French, David. I was taking <laughs> French, but I didn't take it in fourth grade. I took Spanish in fourth grade. Uh, you know, and I took French in high school. So Miss Montgomery, Mademoiselle Montgomery, she's married now. So she's Miss Driver. When I showed up for uh, freshman orientation, I was told that Spanish was full. And uh, my friend from eighth grade was like, well, my cheerleading coach is the French teacher and she's pretty cool. She's pretty, she's pretty much like the coolest teacher in this entire school. And I looked over and I saw this black woman. She was like 23. And she looked at me and she goes, yeah, I should have a sign that just says I'm the coolest teacher in this school. <laughs> and like this woman, like she was like a black lady and she made a joke and she was fun. And I just thought she was just the coolest, <laughs> best person in the universe. And so I took four years of French. I took AP French. I am a very good French speaker to this day. Um, largely, like when I go to France, people, don't, they're like, oh, where are you from? You know, be, and it's really because I cared so much about um, impressing this this teacher that I looked Mademoiselle up to. Montgomery. Mademoiselle oh. Montgomery. <laughs> Just just loved her. And she was super, super tough and super, super strict. Um, and I just never wanted to fail because I, I never wanted to let her down. You know, going back to our the relationships, which is forever our theme, right? And so much of my French proficiency was really just about my desire to, like, do the right thing so that she would think I was good and smart, you know. And mm. um, she is a counselor now at a high school. And we emailed this week because she told me that the teachers are all worried that um, if they don't assign students enough homework during the pandemic, that they won't do well in college. And so I'm going to come talk to the teachers and tell them <laughs> you can really chill on the homework. Really like, we don't even be doing all that in college. Like, it's really not that serious, <laughs> you know? Um, and so I'm really grateful that we continue to have um, that relationship. And I just, I think she's just the bee's knees. I think she's so great. 
just shout out to like having a black lady teacher, you know, like the the cool. And she, she drove a VW Jetta. I thought that was like the coolest thing wow. in the world. That's she an e flex for sure. Yeah, yeah. I was just like, well, you know, as a person who didn't own a car or have a driver's license as a fourteen year old, I was like, oh, uh, she got a Volkswagen. She was just so cool, you know. Um, and and yeah, so so shout out to her. She she may very well uh, be a friend of the show. She might listen and hear this, but uh, yeah, she's awesome. Shout out Mademoiselle Montgomery. Yes. And, uh, and it's been so cool to hear all the teachers that people, you know, that's that to the relationship point. I mean, that's that's what we carry with us, you know. Yeah. My my bonus one, uh, and then I'll shut up, is um, my, my principal, when I was a teacher, my principal, Cheryl Watkins, recently retired after many decades as a dedicated educator in Chicago, uh, doing everything from teaching special ed, being an assistant principal, being a principal, working at the administrative level. And um, it was really hard to be a teacher with her as a principal because she had very, very, very high standards. And I have since come to appreciate the expectations that she had and the love that she had for all of our students in ways that I think I didn't fully appreciate at the time. And so I want to shout out to her. She taught me a lot about being an educator. Beautiful. All right. I love you guys. Love. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming through. Of course. Um, you're you're the best. We'll talk to you in the next apocalypses in the next moments, <laughs> and we're here, and we're not going anywhere. And Appreciate love you, you so and thank you I for all your help me. with this. I love you guys. Take care. Bye. And we'll be back on the line uh, doing some shit after we see <laughs> how the next few weeks go. So yeah. talk to you soon, guys. So I'll try to live. Okay, bye. Lots of the people. <laughs> Peace. Education. Education.